Let's read Leviticus chapter 9. On the eighth day, this is after the seven days that Moses, sorry, Aaron and the sons have been working in the tabernacle. On the eighth day, Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. And he said to Aaron, take for yourself a bull calf for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, both without blemish, and offer them before the Lord. And say to the people of Israel, take a male goat for a sin offering and a calf and a lamb, both a year old without blemish for a burnt offering and an ox and a ram for peace offerings to sacrifice before the Lord and a grain offering mixed with oil. For today, the Lord will appear to you. And they brought what Moses commanded in front of the tent of meeting, and all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. And Moses said, This is the thing that the Lord commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Then Moses said to Aaron, Draw near to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering, and make atonement for yourself and for the people. And bring the offering of the people and make atonement for them, as the Lord has commanded. So Aaron drew near to the altar and killed the calf of the sin offering, which was for himself. And the sons of Aaron presented the blood to him, and he dipped his finger in the blood and put it on the horns of the altar and poured out the blood at the base of the altar. But the fat and the kidneys and the long lobe of the liver from the sin offering he burned on the altar, as the Lord commanded Moses. The flesh and the skin he burnt up with fire outside the camp. Then he killed the burnt offering, and Aaron's sons handed him the blood, and he threw it against the sides of the altar. And they handed the burnt offering to him, piece by piece, and the head, and he burned them on the altar. And he washed the entrails and the legs and burned them with the burnt offering on the altar. Then he presented the people's offering and took the goat of the sin offering that was for the people and killed it and offered it as a sin offering, just like the first one. And he presented the burnt offering and offered it according to the rule. And he presented the grain offering, took a handful of it and burned it on the altar, besides the burnt offering of the morning. Then he killed the ox and the ram, the sacrifice of peace offerings for the people. And Aaron's sons handed him the blood, and he threw it against the sides of the altar. But the fat pieces of the ox and of the ram, the fat tail, and that which covers the entrails and the kidneys and the long lobe of the liver, they put the fat pieces on the breasts, and he burned the fat pieces on the altar. But the breasts and the right thigh Aaron waved for a wave offering before the Lord, as Moses commanded. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. 
And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. This is the word of the Lord. Well, when I lived in Japan, I climbed Mount Fuji with a bunch of friends, including my then-girlfriend, Robin Raymond. She would become Robin Del Rosario. Praise the Lord. About halfway through the climb, she went on ahead with one of our mates and left me alone to get serious cramps in the dark. But that's a story for another time. As you can imagine, it did not result in the end of our relationship. What's important is that we all made it to the summit before sunrise, which is what you want to do when you are climbing Japan's tallest mountain. On the day we climbed it, it was a cloudy day, so I was a bit worried that we may not get a view of the sunrise, which friends of ours had experienced earlier on in the season. But when we got to the top, the clouds were sitting well below the peak, which meant uh, that all we had to do was grab our warm tea in a can from the vending machines that are up there and sit and wait. I will never forget the moment when the sun first broke the surface of the clouds, as you can see from that picture, and there was a very audible, ah, from the crowds of people who had also made the journey. It was truly a glorious moment. And just so you know that that wasn't a picture taken from the internet, here we are. The human heart is wired to respond to glory. We instinctively respond with awe and worship to glorious things, even if we don't know what true glory is. There are two important questions for us to consider as we come to Leviticus 9 this morning. The first is, do we know what is truly glorious? As great as a sunrise or, or something else in creation is, it is not the pinnacle of glorious things. And the other question is, how do we respond when we see what is truly glorious? Well, this morning we will uh, explore our chapter through three points. One, take sin seriously, again. Two, see Christ's glory. And three, give God glory. May we see and respond to the glory of God truly this morning. Let's begin with our first, take sin seriously again. Now, I have the again there in the points because I probably could have put this in just about every sermon on the book of Leviticus. For those of you who might remember, it was basically the title for my sermon in Leviticus 4 to 6 just a few weeks ago. But there's a reason I thought it merited a mention again this morning. Let's read the first four verses. On the eighth day, Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel, and he said to Aaron, Take for yourself a bull calf for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, both without blemish, and offer them before the Lord. 
and say to the people of Israel, take a male goat for a sin offering and a calf and a lamb, both a year old without blemish for a burnt offering and an ox and a ram for peace offerings to sacrifice before the Lord and a grain offering mixed with oil for today the Lord will appear to you. Well, as we've seen in our journey through Leviticus so far, the book is all about how God's people enter God's presence. And a big part of that is right worship, right offerings, and atonement for sin. The first seven chapters gave details about that, uh, talking about the laws of the various offerings that they were to give. And last week we saw in chapter 8 the ordination of the priesthood. Exodus 28 and 29 detailed the instructions that the Lord gave Moses on what to do for the ordination, as we saw. And Leviticus 8 recounted how Moses, Aaron and his sons and the Israelites obeyed those instructions that God gave. And we saw last week how not even the priests or the high priests were exempt from offering sin offerings. Their sin needed to be atoned for just as much as anyone else. And actually, because of the importance of their role, it required a significant offering. Nothing less than a bull. Now, kids, who can tell me, which is bigger, a bull or a goat? Bull, bull, bull. That's right. A bull is much bigger. It feeds way more people, and, which is, and that's one of the reasons why it has much more value than a goat or a lamb or any of these other animals. And so at the priest's ordination, they had to offer up the most valuable of the animals that the Israelites had for a sin offering. And not just one. Exodus 29 tells us that they were to offer up a bull each day for the whole seven days of their ordination. You might remember last week at the end of chapter 8, they did that for seven days, seven symbolizing completeness. Seven sin offerings over seven days. So you think, well, uh, that's, that's a fairly complete thing, right? They must be done. Surely, surely that's enough bulls to cover their sin. And yet here we are on the eighth day, on the very next day, right after they have just ordained and established the priesthood. And what do they need to do? They need to bring a bull calf for another sin offering. So here we are, the, the, the priesthood has been ordained, the Lord has commanded Moses and told the Israelites what to do, how they are to worship him, and now they are about to begin doing that as a regular part of their lives. And so chapter 9 marks the, you, you might have seen the word on the slide before, the inauguration of tabernacle worship. Inauguration is just a fancy word for beginning. This is the beginning of it all. And so to inaugurate it, the priests have to offer another sin offering. You cannot miss the necessity and the importance of dealing with sin in order to come before the Lord. Despite seven whole days of consecrating the priests before the Lord, they had to offer up yet another sin offering before they began to serve as priests. Sin being dealt with before coming before the Lord was a serious thing. 
And that is a message that we cannot hear too often, especially in our culture where we are much more prone to take sin lightly. Especially for those who do not share faith in Christ, we are far more likely to diminish, to downplay, to get rid of the things that we have done wrong and to chalk them up to some kind of psychological source that has made us be that way. It's not to do with our wrong. Perhaps one of the main reasons that we do this, one of the reasons as Christians that we struggle with taking sin seriously is because we take the glory of God too lightly. Notice the reason why these offerings had to be brought at the end of verses 4 and 6. For today the Lord will appear you. You bring these offerings for this is what will happen. This is the thing that the Lord commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. This is why God was about to appear to the people. His glory was going to become visible. That is why atonement was necessary. And so in verse 7, Moses says to Aaron, Draw near to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and for the people and bring the offering of the people and make atonement for them as the Lord has commanded. Notice how it was required, not just for Aaron, but also for the people. Both needed to have their sin atoned for. Friends, do we recognize how great how awesome and how fearful a thing it is to witness the glory of God. Well, in verses 8 to 21, we have a description of the offerings that were brought and how Moses, Aaron, and his sons did as the Lord commanded. Largely, they're the same as the descriptions that we've seen so far, but with some minor differences. Now, I don't plan on working through these passages in detail, seeing as we have seen a lot of that over the last few weeks. But there are a few things to notice in these passages, which I will point out. Now, the first is, yet again, the significance of blood. In each of these offerings, blood is either smeared or thrown or poured on the altar or before it. And the blood atoned for their sin, purified, cleansed. To take us back to Leviticus 17, again, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Sin needs to be atoned for in order to enter God's presence. And the blood of the offerings was given to make atonement for them. Now, ultimately, it was Christ's blood and not the blood of the bulls and goats that actually atoned for their sin. As the book of Hebrews tells us. But it underscored the necessity and the significance of blood in atoning for sin. Your good works cannot atone for it. Your good vibes cannot atone for it. Your being a better human being than than the next person cannot atone for it. Only the blood of Jesus 
can atone for your sin. One of the other interesting factors, uh, features of these verses is the involvement of Aaron's sons in the offerings. Uh, in most of them, uh, they are mentioned in the presenting of the offerings as they hand the blood to Aaron or as they hand the various parts of the animal to him. As we've seen the last couple of weeks, the church is now the holy priesthood of God. And we are all involved in offering up our lives as sacrifices of worship. A priest or a priestess of Christ cannot live a passive life. Your life is offered up. You are involved in the act of worship that is your life. It is not enough to avoid doing wrong. We must strain to do right. And finally, we're reminded again of the totality of these offerings. The burnt offering and the sin offerings for the priests were entirely burnt up. No eating of any of them is mentioned, even though the peace offering was usually eaten by the priest and the one who offered it. And so once again, we're reminded here at the inauguration of tabernacle worship of Israel of the fact that God requires nothing less than our whole selves. Brothers and sisters, there is no part of you, there is no part of who we are, no part of what we are like, no part of what we do, and no part of what we love that is to be kept from Him. He rightly requires all of ourselves to be offered up to Him in worship. Do you regularly ask him to reveal any part of your life where that isn't true? Don't excuse yourself by saying, well, that's, that's just who I am. That's just what I'm like. Because if it's a part of you that does not honor the Lord, then it is a part that must be surrendered to him. Grieve over that sin. Confess it and strive for holiness. The glory of God demands it. There is a solemnity to this occasion as the sacrificial system gets started on its first day here. Atonement for sin is emphasized once again, and that's why I made the heading for this point. And obviously, God in his wisdom deemed it necessary to put this chapter and these details into his word. Now, much of us probably don't visit this chapter or these details very often for spiritual nourishment, right? Leviticus is generally not the place you go when you're feeling tough and down about life and living for Jesus. And as I said, I haven't gone over the details again because we've, we've done so already in previous weeks. But at the very least, we must consider why the emphasis of these passages is here. Not only did God command for this to happen in Israel, he commanded for it to be recorded and preserved for his people for all time. And so I hope as, as we continue to come back to God's work, word, even in parts like this, to keep digging and exploring what God has to say through it. Do not think of Leviticus as an impenetrable book. 
He might not be as, as theologically rich as other parts, but don't give up digging just because you hit hard rock on the surface. God always surprises me with what lies beneath the surface of his word. And so let me encourage you to persevere in mining it. And if at the very least you come away from this chapter with an appreciation of the seriousness yet again of our sin and a recognition that that God's glory demands a sober attention to it, then it will be worth coming back to it just for that. But I think at least one other thing that we can take away from these passages is not just a sobering recognition of the seriousness of our sin, but also great comfort. Comfort, you say? What kind of comfort? Comfort in knowing that even Israel's high priest, the highest priestly office that could be held by any of Aaron and his sons, required such a significant offering for sin. The one whose very life was all about being consecrated to the Lord, not only having had seven days of sin offerings, but another one on his first day on the job. And not only that, as you might remember, the priests had to offer a sin offering for themselves every single day. So brothers and sisters, take sin seriously, but also take heart. Because as King Solomon would say in his prayer of dedication for the temple, centuries later, there is no one who does not sin. You are not alone. We are all the chief of sinners. And this means that there is nothing that makes you more or less worthy than the person sitting next to you. Take a good look at them. You are not more worthy of God's mercy than them. Nor are you less worthy of God's mercy than them. You are not more worthy of God's mercy than the most morally bankrupt person that you can think of. But you are also no less worthy than the person you think has no flaws. Or at least far less flaws than you. Even the high priest required so many offerings to atone for his sin. And it is so crucial to grasp this because we stand before the Lord. As the congregation did, they drew near and they stood before the Lord, so do we. I suppose you could say that this is true of us in one sense because God is omnipresent, right? So we're always standing before the Lord. But in another sense, it is a posture of our lives. Have you ever stood before somebody of great authority after doing something wrong? Perhaps a parent or a coach or a boss It is worth imagining ourselves in that position and standing before the Lord. 
Because if, if we have not had our sin atoned for, that is what it will feel like, but multiplied to an unimaginable degree. As I said for, uh, before, for most of us, we, we probably take the presence of God nowhere near as seriously as we should and therefore take our sin nowhere near as seriously as we should. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're visiting and you're not a Christian. Perhaps this is the first time that you are hearing this. Perhaps all you've ever heard about God is that He is love. I want to tell you this morning, that is absolutely true. And it is one of the most glorious things about Him. But that is not the only thing about Him. The Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And that fear begins with seeing who God is and who you are before him. Standing before him. And to stand before him without your sin being atoned for, that is a terrifying thought. Far worse than a smack on the bottom or being fired from your job. But the wonderful news about the gospel of Jesus is that you don't need to stand before him in that state. The beautiful thing about it is that the glory of God can be a source of joy and praise and worship for his children. A truly loving father does not only discipline his children when they stand before him having done wrong. But he also wraps them up in his arms when they acknowledge what they've done and ask for his forgiveness. And so our Heavenly Father does for all who come to him to confess their sin and to trust in Christ. I pray that you will do that today. And it brings us to our second point. See Christ's glory. We saw in verses 4 and 6 that the whole purpose of these offerings was that the glory of the Lord would appear. We're about to see that purpose fulfilled. But just before that, after the offerings, Aaron and Moses do a couple more things. Let's read from verse 22. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. Aaron lifts up his hands and pronounces a blessing. A physical position that is not uncommon for this. Most of us today, even as when you see hands going up, it can mean all sorts of different things. But certainly in, in this kind of setting, this kind of context, we, we get a sense of what is going on here. We get a sense of what uh, happens in the Old Testament when it occurs. And as a matter of fact, the lifting of hands was usually associated with prayer. Psalm 141, 2 says, Let my prayer be counted as incense before you, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. King Solomon also lifts his hands at the dedication of the temple as he prays. So lifting of hands was often a posture of prayer. 
I wonder if we should bring it back. Do it more often. And this makes sense because Aaron himself or the priest or whoever it was pronouncing the blessing wasn't the one doing the blessing. See, I can, I can put my hands up before you all and say, I bless you. But that doesn't really do anything, does it? Nothing comes out of my hands. Uh, there's no gold dust flying from here. But no, if I was to pronounce a blessing for all of us here this morning, it doesn't come from me, does it? It comes from the Lord. Aaron himself didn't have power to bless the people. The blessing was both a prayer to God to bless the people as much as it was a pronouncement of God's blessing. And this is most clearly seen in the very blessing that many of us are familiar with. And that the Lord told Moses to tell Aaron to tell the people. We read about it in Numbers chapter 6. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, Say it with me. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. You notice how Aaron is the one pronouncing the blessing, yet the Lord is the one doing the blessing. It's probable that this is the very blessing that Aaron pronounced here in verse 22 of chapter 9 in Leviticus. God's people are blessed. His face shines on us, meaning he is favorable towards us. Meaning the truth of receiving the spiritual blessing of becoming one of his sons or daughters fundamentally shifts not just the reality of our lives, but the way we see and approach them. Sadly, some people have taken this idea of God's blessing way out of context to to mean, well, God's going to bless you with lots of money and mansions and whatnot. No, no. As as much as it is true that God provides for us, the blessing is all about a fundamental shift in how we see our lives. And it is true in all areas of life. When God provides for our material needs, we are blessed. When we walk through sickness with the Lord, we are blessed. When we are welcomed into his church, we are blessed. When we have challenging relationships that expose our sin, we are blessed. When we grow in the knowledge and the fear and the love of the Lord, we are blessed. And when we wrestle with doubt, We are blessed. When we see the beauty and glory of Christ and rejoice, we are blessed. We are blessed because all of these things, 
whether we naturally think of them as blessings or not, are all things that serve to sanctify us and serve to to cause us to cling to Christ more and more. In finding that we have no good apart from Jesus, we are blessed. The blessing of Numbers 6 and of being in Christ is one of grace and peace. One of having the mind-blowing privilege of his face shining upon us in his presence rather than his fire consuming us. And we receive that blessing from our high priest, our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, if ever you feel down on your circumstances, just remember God's face shines on you. He is good to you. He is blessing you as you follow him through all of life's ups and downs. You may stand before him, receiving not his wrath, but his grace. That is a blessing that casts its glorious shadow over your entire life. Do we see God's blessing in our lives? If we don't, I pray that we would keep looking for it, keep seeking the Lord and his blessing and seeing that in every area. Well, after blessing the people, Aaron comes down, perhaps because the height of the altar, there may have been a step uh, above it and that explains the description. And after that, we see uh, in verse 23 that Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting and came out after some time to bless the people together. The scripture doesn't tell us why they went into the tent of meeting, although from other verses, it may have been to pray or perhaps as Moses did from time to time to speak with the Lord. Numbers 789 gives us one example of Moses doing exactly that. And so after all the offerings and the blessing of Moses and Aaron of the people, the whole purpose of all of this happens. As we were told at the beginning of the chapter, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. The word glory is only used twice in the whole book of Leviticus, both times in this chapter. So clearly, Moses is making a point about this significant event. What does this mean? What did it look like? Kids, what do you think the glory of God would look like in this situation? Like light? Yeah, anyone else? What did I hear? Jesus from up the back. There he is, in the flesh. Anyone else? Any adults? What do you think the glory would look like in this moment? Interesting, isn't it? 
when you think about it. Was it something spectacular and beautiful? Like a sunrise over the clouds? Well, from previous verses, we see that the glory of the Lord is often seen uh, or associated with a cloud. Exodus chapter 24, verse 16 is one such example where the glory of the Lord dwells on Mount Sinai and the cloud covers it for six days. I'd say that is probably what they saw. But Leviticus 9 doesn't tell us specifically, so we don't know for sure. And whatever it was, it was very obviously the glory of the Lord. But that wasn't the only thing they saw. Verse 24 says, And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. See, fire comes out and consumes it. I don't know about you, but if I saw that, I'd be pretty freaked out. Or I would figure that there must be some kind of trick, right? But they didn't have special effects back then. No pyrotechnic teams. This was, without a doubt, a sign of the Lord's presence among the people. His glory appearing to them. The purpose for which these offerings and the beginning of Israel's worship was fulfilled. But you know what's even better than God's glory appearing in a cloud or in fire out of nowhere? His glory that was to come. There was more and greater glory yet to be revealed. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 5 says, and uh, George Handel put this to music in his epic Messiah. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. What is that glory? What could possibly be more glorious than cloud and fire? Fast forward a few centuries and the Apostle John would tell us exactly what it was. John 1.14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus, the one who shared the father's glory since before the world existed, he dwelt among the people. The very glory of the Lord lived and breathed and walked among humankind. Perhaps you've heard that the Greek word for dwelt there is the same as the word used in the Greek Old Testament for tabernacle. That wording is intentional. And the imagery is supposed to make you think of the kind of thing that we just saw in Leviticus 9. Jesus, the eternal one, the one who shared in the very same glory of the Father, tabernacled among us. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Which is exactly what Hebrews 1 verse 3 would say. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. 
And what happens after he lived and ministered and died and rose? After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Again, notice the language of tabernacle worship. After giving purification for sins, he sat down at God's right hand. The glorious one, the word that became flesh, tabernacled among us before making perfect purification for sin and then ascending into glory. And what did he do before he ascended? Well, listen to Luke 24, verses 50 to 51. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted for them and was carried up to heaven. Our great high priest blessed his disciples before ascending, assuring us that the Lord would indeed keep us and make his face to shine upon us and be gracious to us and lift up his countenance upon us and give us his peace. That is his assurance to all of his disciples, to all of his peoples everywhere. Why? Because of him. Brothers and sisters, is this not the most glorious thing humankind has ever witnessed? Okay, maybe we didn't see it in person. But does that take away from the wonder and the awe of it? Far more than any glorious thing creation has to offer is the glory of Christ. Will you respond to such glory? And that brings us to our final point. Give God glory. When the glory of the Lord appeared to the people of Israel, how did they respond? What does verse 24 say? When all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. And was this a shout of praise? Was it a shout of joy? Was it a shout of terror? And perhaps it's a bit of everything. You can be terrified of how great and awesome and powerful the Lord is and at the same time be filled with joy and wonder that He is your God. At the same time, be filled with rapturous praise because of His grace that He has poured out to us and falling on our faces in reverent and thankful worship is an appropriate response. Having been prepared by all the offerings that were required to atone for their sin, surely, at least in this moment, Israel recognized how much they fell short of God's glory and how much God had shown them grace in providing them tabernacle worship. Church, when we look into the face of Christ and when we behold His glory, it should be no different This is precisely how his own disciples responded when he ascended into heaven. Listen to the final verses of the book of Luke. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. 
the followers of Christ, the sons and daughters of the Lord, God's royal and holy priesthood responds this way because we realize that we do not deserve it. We realize that we deserve to be consumed by the very fire that has come out of the glory of the Lord. But because of our Lord Jesus Christ, who bore that for us, we instead receive his pardon, his grace and his mercy. As Romans 3.23 reminds us, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It should be us being consumed by the fire, but it isn't because of Christ. Because of his great love, we are not consumed. And because of that, we now live to worship him offering up our lives as living sacrifices. See, this is now our posture as we stand before him in life, face down, shouting with great joy and wonder and awe and reverence praises to our God. We no longer anticipate a day where we will stand before him expecting wrath and judgment, but instead grace and peace. As Paul would write later in the letter to the Romans, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. If only we could live with the same kind of rapturous response in our lives that we read about in our passage this morning. If only we could see the glory of Christ as it truly is the greatest display of the glory of God in all of history. Is your heart slack against sin? Consider the glory of Christ. Do you wonder if turning from it and pursuing holiness is worth it? Do you wonder if perhaps the world has so many other better glorious things to to contemplate, to sell yourself to, to worship? Look to Christ. Is his glory greater than any other glory in your life? though I don't usually like quoting from the same people two weeks in a row, especially from the same book. Bishop J.C. Ryle gives us helpful perspective here. Most men hope to go to heaven when they die, but few, it may be feared, take the trouble to consider whether they would enjoy heaven if they got there. I can tell you now, heaven is going to be filled with a whole lot of the glory of God and the glory of Christ. Are you preparing your heart for eternity by looking on the glory of our Lord Jesus today and responding responding with reverent, face down, total surrender, worship? If there is anything anything 
in this life that you find to be more glorious or more amazing than him, then you will wake up the day after you die and realize that it was totally not worth wasting your time on it. Even a magnificent sunrise at the top of the world cannot compare. Rejoice, hope, look forward to and meditate on the glory of God in Christ. Savor him. Read a verse or two from the Gospels and think about what that shows you about him. Because he is the reason that you can stand before the Lord. And he is one day coming back in all his glory. The prophet Daniel prophesied, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." The glory of the Lord is coming back. And it will be the dawn of a new age. One that will go on forever and will never be destroyed. And on that day, his kingdom will know no end and he will be glorified. And all his people will join him in glory, glorifying him for eternity, saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. That will be our cry for eternity. Is it our cry today? Let's pray. Our Father, we recognize that our hearts too often are too small. We elevate earthly and lesser glories above you. So Father, please lift our eyes to see the greatest glory that you have ever shown the world in our Lord Jesus Christ. And may we live in wholehearted, reverent, total worship to you in response. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.